0: Hello, welcome to Church History Review. This is episode three. We're looking at the Trinitarian controversy leading up to the Council of Nicaea. So this is particularly looking in the 100s and 200s AD. The Council of Nicaea is early in the 300s. So some of the reasons we talked about the previous episode about why christians were being persecuted during this time period was that they worship jesus and this was seen as like bad and it wasn't just because they're worshiping jesus it's also because they refuse to worship the emperor so they're making exclusive claims about their religion sound familiar right like christians today still get in trouble for being too exclusive and not inclusive of other beliefs and religions right So they refused to join in with the pagan festivals. This irritated them. I've I've been reading um, a book called uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields, which is a story of the Cambodian church. And it's interesting when the gospel comes to Cambodia in the early 1920s, Christians are persecuted for the same things. They don't join in with the uh, Buddhist festivals, and so they're persecuted. So this is the story of Christianity from the beginning. Is persecution. So this gives them this reputation for being intolerant, ironically, right? They're getting persecuted, but they're intolerant. And they're making these exclusive claims and also claims about morality that set them apart from society. So they don't want, they don't accept uh, the immorality that's rampant in the culture. And so that sets them apart. And some people actually, they gain respect for it eventually. So then, some of the early Christian leaders are very suspicious of philosophy. They don't think that mixing Christianity and philosophy are a good thing. one of the most famous leaders that uh, rejects philosophy is Tertullian. He lives from 155 to 240 AD and he's his famous quote is what has Athens to do with Jerusalem. So he says he doesn't want any mixing of pagan Uh, philosophy. Arrhenius of Loins, we talked about last time, he's from France, very influential thinker in the early church. He thinks that Gnosticism is just a collection of heathen philosophies, and he's quite right about that. And so he rejects these heathen philosophies and says, we don't need heathen philosophies in Christianity. Uh, Hippolytus from 170 to 235 AD, he shows the philosophical foundations of Gnosticism and used that to attack Gnosticism, but then he ends up rejecting both philosophy and Gnosticism. So the early Christian church, the very early writers were pretty much anti-philosophy, except for Justin Martyr, and he's one of the earliest Christian writers. He's around from 100 to about 160 A.D., he had been a philosopher, he'd been traveling around, he'd gone to Athens, he'd gone to Ephesus, and he becomes disillusioned as a young man with the answers the philosophy provides, or the lack thereof. And he, in Ephesus, he meets an old man, and there's, of course, the tradition that this could have been the Apostle John, very unlikely, but who knows. So he meets an old man by the seashore who um, shares the gospel with him, Use, uh, and the the This person uses fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament to prove the truth of the the Bible. So as we talked about before, the early church in 100 AD is using fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament to prove their point. So the church, again, the church has the Bible. (laughs) You can't say that enough. So Justin then moves to Rome and he becomes a defender of the church and a defender of the gospel. But he still considers himself a philosopher. He's a really smart dude, and he uses philosophy to defend the gospel. So he knows the philosophy behind Gnosticism better than most of the Gnostics, and he's able to make them look quite silly uh, and, and show their dualism to be false. So, but Justin uses Platonic ideas like human responsibility, the way that uh, Plato had described that. He, Plato had talked about uh, kinship or relation of of God and ultimate justice in the universe. We'll see way later in church history, um, Aquinas doing quite the same thing, using uh, Aristotle's philosophies more particularly to understand theology. And Justin kind of sets the trend for doing this. So he, he, uh, Justin also defends, uh, Revelation as scripture. Some people had questioned the book of Revelation because it's so different than the rest of the New Testament. He defends it, and he uh, appeals to bodily resurrection to defend to defend Revelation against the Gnostic idea that there is no bodily resurrection. So Justin is sound. He's a, he's a good guy, um, and he's a bit of an apologist. He doesn't want uh, Gnosticism rampant, and he sees how he can use philosophy to do that. Also, one of Justin's biggest contribution is incorporating the Greek concept of the Logos into the the, the Bible, really, the, way, the theology of, of the Logos. So the Logos is the Word, right, from John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So during... Um, Justin's lifetime, the the Gospel of John is widely circulated. A lot of people are reading the Gospel of John, and he goes around teaching uh, that this is the the Logos. So um, Justin argued that the word is the mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5, and that the Son derived from the Father without division. So that's important. The early church... Very early on in the 100s, they would affirm the Trinity. So there's this mis misunderstanding um, or really false false idea about church history that the church kind of uh, the the doctrine of the Trinity evolves. Right? And this is similar to that idea that oh, the church didn't have the Bible. The Bible kind of comes around later after it evolves. People collect these books and then they eventually say, "Voila!" There's the Bible. Same idea with the Trinity. A lot of people want to say that the early church were, they were just um, mono, uh, monarchians, in other words, that they believed that the, only the father is the monarch, only the father is truly God, and the son's kind of a lesser God, and then eventually, through some other ideas, he kind of evolves to become co-equal with God, and you get a bi-theism or di where you have two gods, and then eventually that turns into a tri-theism. Uh, where you have three gods and then they kind of mesh them into one. So, this is an evolving idea, right? Um, but that is not what happened at all. What happened was there was an implicit Trinitarianism, which then, once hammered out in in theology, becomes an explicit Trinitarianism. So, the very early church, the Apostles' Creed comes around in the 100s and it it is very trinitarian. Their church is baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the Christians would affirm they're all God. They just couldn't really articulate it. They hadn't had teachers come and explain this more thoroughly. So as the church works this out, they come to a clearer understanding. And there's some controversy that um, that happens. There's false teaching that they have to combat. So uh, Justin, we see, has this concept of the logos of the, the word, the son being divine, that he derives from the father without division. So it's not that God separates himself, that the son comes from the father. He's sent by the father. But he didn't go really much uh, beyond that in explaining. It. So Arrhenius of Loins, who comes a little after Justin Martyr, he, he's also arguing with the Gnostics. And he sees this issue of authority. And again, that's always the issue, right? Who has the authority? Where do we get our answers from? And he sees that the, the Gnostic question was a skeptical question. Basically, the Gnostics are asking, how can a perfect God make such a messed up world? And so they say he can't. And therefore, God had to create the Son, who then created these lesser beings. And so there's this process eventually coming to, um, to us. So we're down the line, the, down the chain from God. We cannot be directly God the Father creating sinful man. So the Son becomes kind of a mediator in between. And uh, interesting, Kabbalah, which um, is a Gnostic version of Judaism, has the same idea that there's these succession of angels that God creates uh, to distance himself from the physical creation. So the Gnostics see the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. Uh, and Marcion is also a, a bit of a Gnostic, right? And he had been the one that said, we need this canon. And so Irenaeus says, you know what? Marcion's right about one thing. We do need a canon. We need to, to define which books we believe so that we don't end up getting mixed up with some of the false teaching that's going around. So Irenaeus then argues for the need of also a catholic church and what we mean by catholic is a universal church so you have the different gnostic groups you have one group called the Valentinian gnostics and they claim to get new revelation from god and that they have the secret tradition that these uh they have secret messages that have been passed to them from the apostles that no one else knew except people in their secret little group. And he had to join their group to get in on this special knowledge. And that salvation came through attaining this special knowledge. So Irenaeus says these groups are, are very problematic. If a Christian, if he goes to a new city and he searches out the Christians and he runs into these Valentinian Gnostics claiming to be Christians, and they say, oh, yeah, we've, we're a church coming, join with us, and – People are going to get really confused, right? And they're going to end up um, thinking they're with Christians when they're really with heretics. So he argues that they they need a Catholic Church, a universal—that's what Catholic means—a universal Church that's going to preserve the teachings of the Church. And he also argues for orthodoxy, right? So he, orthodoxy just means true teaching. So he's like, we've got to have a standard. of of what we believe to reject these new ideas that are coming along. And the church has pretty much always gone by the old maxim, if it's new, it ain't true. So along come these um, monarchian people. They believe that the father alone is the sole monarch. He's the alone really is God. And some people actually accuse Justin Martyr then of being a diatheist of having believing in two gods because he believes the son emanates or, or derives from the father without separation. And they say, no, no, you can't believe that. You've got to just believe the father alone is, is really God. Theophilus of Antioch, who's around, we're not sure exactly when he's born, but he lives to 183 AD. So very early on, he's the first one to use the word triad to refer to God. So remember, the, as anti-Trinitarians like to re- to tell us that the Trinity is not in the Bible and that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a technical theological term used to understand the Godhead. The Godhead is used in the Bible though. That's what I like to remind them of the Godhead, that there are three persons in one in uh, the Godhead. So Arrhenius borrows this language from Theophilus and he come, he, I should say he comes up, but he, he coins the term the Trinity as part of a, uh, Saying that this is the re- successive revelation of God, the mission that the mission of God, the missio Deo, in Latin, that is um, God revealing Himself progressively. So we, it, throughout Scripture, we get a clearer and clearer understanding of who God is. Although we'll never fully comprehend God, we can apprehend Him. We can. He has revealed Himself enough so that we can get have true knowledge of God, even though we don't know everything about God. So He's revealed to us. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So He teaches this. Well, um, after Him we have in Rome we have some some problems. So the Church in Rome is interesting at this point. They're courting the politicians. They become quite distinguished, and the Church starts to um, try to gain favor with the different Roman emperors, and the. The, the Catholic Church really starts to fall apart when they they're, they recognize these bishops and they said, okay, this will pro- preserve our orthodoxy. We have a recognized church. This is the right church. And these other subgroups that don't want to be part of it, they're, not, they're outside of orthodoxy. But the problem is that they recognize these bishops that are heretics. So they have this Bishop Calixtus I. He becomes a bishop of Rome in 217 A.D., and he starts handing out indulgences, right? Remind you of anybody, right? Way later, we're gonna get that with the um, Tetzel and the the Reformation. So they're handing out indulgences back in 217. This becomes like this, and really the practice comes directly from paganism, right? Where did they get the idea for indulgences? Not in the Bible; they get it from pagan religion. So the the Romans uh, have their pantheon and all their different gods and different priests, and the church is just kind of seen as another one of these. A lot of people have joined it, and if, hey, you want to get some favor with the gods, you go in, you pay your money to the priest, whatever temple you want to go to, and they'll they'll give you what you want, right? If you want your sins forgiven or if you want good luck or whatever, you go pay to the gods. It's pretty standard in every kind of paganism there is, and the Roman church starts doing this in 2.17. Calixtus also denies the deity of Christ and says that the father was the spirit and that indwelt the man, Jesus, the Roman Catholic church still venerates this guy as a saint. Okay, <laughs> Like, whoa. Now I have to say too, there are things that do exist at this time period, like the Bible. And uh, at least and among most Christians, the common person would have, um, believed in the trinity they couldn't have articulated it very well but they had they would affirm it at least in the apostles creed and they were they believed that jesus was fully divine the i there so those things exist what doesn't exist at this time period is the roman catholic church all right contrary to popular belief where the roman catholics would like you to think that um oh if you really want to be part of the one true church that's existed ever since the beginning you gotta be roman catholic well Roman Catholic is actually an oxymoron Catholic means universal and Roman means like this one place you're from Rome So how can you have a church? It's in one location and yet be universal, right? It doesn't work that way. They argue and argue later For the primacy of Peter, right? They say Peter's the primary apostle He's the first bishop of Rome, right? They have to make that claim in order to establish Rome as their headquarters. And we're going to see that happening way later. So that debate continues to go on. The church does not really ever recognize, or the Eastern church never recognizes Rome and they can date their stuff back just as far as Roman Catholics can. So it's a false understanding to think that the Roman Catholics are the original church. And even though they are very ancient, um, they definitely don't always have a history, a very good track record. So, um, Not the place you want to go to for uh, a clear understanding of church history. Mm. Um, So then, Tertullian, right? We mentioned him. He he really is like the Martin Luther of the early church. He he was a very direct guy. He had no time for pleasantries, no time for sophisticated speech. He didn't want to get into philosophical discussions. He simply wanted to defend the truth. So he ends up leaving the church along with Hi- Hippolytus, the guy who had uh, kind of qu- used the term triad to understand God because of Calixus and his handing out of these indulgences in Rome and all this craziness that was going on. These guys say, we- this Catholic church idea, this is a bad idea. We're leaving. So Tertullian follows a argument for the Trinity. He says, we've got to believe in the Trinity. We've got to believe all three persons are one substance. This is as far as they get at that, this point. Later, there's going to be understanding about there being a distinction between the persons and the substance, but he's saying that there is. They all share the same essence or substance. So that's Tertullian. Uh, then, uh, around the time, a little bit before Tertullian, so Tertullian's from one fifty five to two forty AD. Clement is from of Alexandria. he's from 150 to 215 so he's a lot like justin martyr and he, he's very fond of philosophy right he's there around the time of oregon as well or origin or however you want to say it. so justin uh he wants to show that christianity and philosophy aren't opposed to each other and he wants to argue that all like he's kind of like abraham Kuiper, right all truth is god's truth we can use the, um, the wisdom of the world um, as long as it's subordinate to the truth of the, the gospel of the Bible. And he wants to use this against the Gnostics. So he has an apologetic uh, uh, idea here to, to do this. So he wants to show that the Gnostics are uninterested in virtue or character and that a true Gnostic, someone who truly knows, would find God. God at work in creation, not God opposed to creation, as the Gnostics teach. Um, so Alexandria is the theological headquarters of the early church. The Romans, like, like really, and it's interesting with Roman culture, Romans just weren't that interested in philosophical debate and clear distinctions and they just kind of, they were more pragmatic, right? They want to say, what's practical? What works? Uh, In that way they're they're a little bit like uh, Americans, that Americans want practical answers and a lot of Americans want a kind of reductionism. We don't want to debate the fine points of of philosophical issues all the time. We're more like more people of action. Um, Whereas some of our European uh, cousins would be a little bit more, Hesitant to move to action, they'd want to think through an issue first. Um, that's just kind of as a whole overgeneralization, probably. So, um, in Alexandria, you've got Clement, you also have got a Dionysius of Alexandria who comes later. So, Dionysius of Alexandria comes shortly after Alexand- uh, Clement passes away, and he um he gets into a debate with some. Uh, he's a bishop in, in Alexandria, he gets in debate with some of his people on understanding of the Trinity. So by this time, there's a new bishop in Rome who's also named Dionysius. So it's a nice um, confusion there. There's tons of, you'll see this over and over again in church history. We've got like two or three people living at the same time that share the same name. Kind of confusing. But so Dionysius of Alexandria, he's a, also a follower. He's in the school of Oregon. And he um doesn't have the same understanding of the Trinity, and so some of these people say, "Well, it's right to Rome. Rome will will help us up." And Rome is more than happy to exert their influence. And uh, Dionysius of Rome writes to try to understand their confusion about the Trinity. And basically, what the issue was: is, so Oregon had taught subordinationism, or subordinitarianism or however you want to say it. So basically, that the the, the son is subordinate to the father in the trinity. Rome felt like this is tritheism. That You're distinguishing too much between the members of the trinity. So in the one of the reasons too that the group in Alexandria had a different view on the trinity than Rome is that they're actually fighting two different fronts. Uh, one group is fighting modalism right that that is the um idea that God is one and that uh, he just appears sometimes as a son, sometimes he appears as a father, sometimes he appears as a spirit, but is actually not three persons. It's one God, one nature, one person. This is the view that mo- modern groups like the um, Oneness Pentecostals or a lot of apostolic. If you see apostolic on the name of a church, beware. They're probably more than likely I have a confused view of the trinity so um rome is facing that whereas uh, alexandria um they're they're facing um adoptionism so and 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 again these this is kind of an overgeneralization these ideas were floating all over the mediterranean but they're just kind of worried about certain tendencies in the church so um, they don't. They're concerned about some of the teachers are going to be concerned about adoptionism, which is like the son is adopted by the father. He's he's um, not eternal. So origin. Here's how the the influence goes to Arius, who becomes, right, the famous Arian heresy that we're gonna mm-hmm. we'll talk about that next episode. So origin teaches Lucian of Antioch, Antioch. Or Lucian and Antioch really is the Arius before Arius. He's he's a monarchian. He believes the Father alone is the monarch, and he gets martyred, which promotes his ideas all over the 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 Mediterranean. So by the time Arius ascends to popularity, he's a pretty old person when he does. He doesn't get a even ordained until he's in his sixties because of his weird views. He starts a school in Alexandria and he teaches that the the father alone really is is god and that jesus was created and he, he this is the issue that he wants to to fight so they also employ origin origin is not on board with this he's long dead but his theology does not teach this he believed the son was begotten but he's he came up with the idea of him being eternally begotten so that the son never came into existence he never was created he's just eternally the begotten son of god which it depends how you understand origin there's debate about him about how sound he was some people write him off as a heretic other people say no he had a he was a good bible teacher one thing we can say for him is that he had a he believed that scripture was the rule that all things need to be evaluated by scripture, um, though he does employ philosophy sometimes. And he's really big into allegorical interpretation, so he gets pretty fanciful and a little off base with some of his, his teaching. So the church is in this three way battle, and we'll see, we'll talk about this next time what happens with Arian heresy and how Arius spreads his ideas around. But the important thing to note from today is that the church has always believed in. The Trinity, the church would affirm implicitly the Trinity, but later after this debate is settled, the church explicitly uh, would affirm the Trinity, be able to explain it very clearly. And also that the Roman Catholic Church has not always existed and some of the earliest bishops of Rome were heretics. So (laughs) uh, hope you have a good one and we'll talk to you next time.